Do you want to say your name? Yeah, for, um... I am Professor Sophie Mariñez, and I am a faculty in the Modern Languages Department here at BMCC. I work on okay. um, the relationship between Haitians and Dominicans mm -hmm. in the Dominican Republic, and how you know they share the same island, and through history, they have been they have had many moments of hostility but yeah, also but also a lot of moments of cooperation and solidarity and fraternity and helping each other uh, achieve a common goal mm. Mm -hmm. and that is a story that is less talked about right so you reacted yeah, you're, immediately you're right. about the hostility and yeah, the conflict you that, but right? you don't hear about you know the friendship and the solidarity that goes um, between that that has emerged in different moments of history um, you may ask perhaps how come there are two different countries sharing the same island how did that happen right and this island which is known today as Hispaniola uh, was first um, uh, you know uh, was the first place of the encounter between the Europeans and the natives in 1492 when Christopher Columbus arrived mm -hmm. and the first place of settlement of the Spaniards in the 1500s and then but then because the Spaniards went um, uh, were more interested in gold mines and silver they went to the rest of the continent they went to Peru and Mexico and the colonization took place mostly in those places and then the island itself was kind of abandoned and then the Spanish settlers who were there, they stayed in the in the eastern side, and then the western side got abandoned. And so little by little, it became populated by French pirates and fugitives that were hanging out in the area. And the, and then, a hundred years later, they they decided that this was going to be a colony, a French colony. So the French, the French crown, uh, and the Spanish crown got an agreement that they were going to split the island and then there was then you had the Spanish colony of Santo Domingo and the French colony of Saint Domingue mm. then eventually with time they, they were both slave societies and um, but the French side was very brutal and at the same time it was very prosperous because the the slavery uh, was industrialized whereas in the Spanish side, um, the, the, the economic system was different. It was a cattle system. It was not a sugar plantation or coffee plantation like in the French side. And that population, after a while, you had almost a million African slaves and to 10,000 uh, French um, masters. And the numbers themselves were not sustainable. At some point, the cruelty was such that they rebelled and then was born Haiti, and mm. which is the first black nation of the entire hemisphere and the first to have um, uh, abolished slavery effectively in 1804. And um, it's the place that is called also the place where blackness stood up for the first time. I never heard of that. You never heard of that? Really good history lesson. I'm really glad that I've talked to you today. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, interesting. Well, go, go on, go on. Yeah. So, so much. because of because the now Haitians defeated the French because 
you know, that moment, the, you know, between 1791, which is the first re re revolt, until 1804, almost, I mean, a little over 10 years passed, right, of fight between the slaves fighting for their freedom and the French trying to quash them, to squash them. Um, Napoleon Bonaparte, who was the French emperor at the time, was so intent in keeping the colony of Saint-Domingue and keeping slavery there that he sold all of what is known as the famous Louisiana Purchase. Yeah. You heard of that, mm -hmm. right? You remember? And all those states where not just what is known today as Louisiana, but everything in the Midwest, all the way to North Dakota, all that area belonged to France. And, the, and Napoleon sold all of that to keep Saint-Domingue and to, you know, because he needed the money to fund 50,000 troops and Jefferson bought it. Yes, let's buy it because then, and that's how United States became what it is today. But even with all that money and even with 50,000 troops, Napoleon lost and he lost the, per the Louisiana states or colonies and he lost 50,000 troops who were killed, all of them, by, yeah. the, by the African slaves. I mean, uh, yeah. And so, and so it's like the most embarrassing and humiliating defeat like for it. the Europeans and slave owners, right? The end at the time. And also everybody who were slave owners in the whole American continent were afraid that this example will be spread all over the United States and America, the South of American continent. And they did not want the Haitian example to be imitated. So they put in place a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, uh, how can I say this, penalties for Haiti to be blocked, right? They, they placed, uh, they put in place an embargo uh, Haiti as a new nation was not allowed for decades, was not allowed to have commerce with anybody else, and um, and they were not recognized as a full nation state. And on addition, in addition to that, um, when the Haiti, you know, when, because Haiti was isolated and they needed, you know, any nation needs to be in communication with other nations to have commerce and all that, they wanted to negotiate again with European countries, uh, especially with France, and to recognize them. And the price that France said uh, uh, imposed was that you have to pay us back for all that we all what we lost. You have to give us indemnization, and it imposed on Haiti um, a debt, which is equivalent to 21 billion dollars today. So that is how Haiti, on its birth, was already, uh, you know, wearing this straitjacket of this debt that kept it down and impoverished it uh, for so many, you know, until today. I forgot to mention that Haiti, the reason why Napoleon Bonaparte wanted to keep Saint-Domingue as a colony is because it was the main source of enrichment of France, of all the colonies. Saint-Domingue was called the Pearl of the Antilles, the Pearl of the Caribbean, because it was from, from Saint-Domingue that France became what it became as a powerful, wealthy nation. 
So that's why they they went they didn't want to lose it. That's why they sold the Louisiana uh, colony, you know. Um, and it, so that territory went from being one of the most prosperous colonies in the world to being what is now known as the most impoverished country of the continent. Um, so and so that was one thing that was done to Haiti. It was uh, blockaded. And then it was demonized. So that, you know, ideologically, Haitians became a synonymous of zombies, of um, witches, of uh, primitive cannibals, of everything that blackness is supposed, everything negative that blackness is supposed to represent in the eyes of white supremacists, right? So the same ideology that came into place to justify slavery uh, came into place to ostracize Haiti as a nation. And that ideology, anti-Haitian ideology, was adopted by the rest of Latin America and, and in the Dominican Republic by those who were the elite, descendants of the elite slave owners in the Dominican Republic. Oh. And so the Dominican Republic had to distance itself from Haiti. Hey, we're not like them. We are white. We are descendants of Spaniards. We're not African. We're not voodoo practitioners. We're Catholic and we speak Spanish. And so that was one of the tenets of the identity formation for Dominicans, of the discourse of what is who they are. But on the same time, on the ground, that was not really the reality. Haitians and Dominicans were connecting all the time because when you are work, when you have somebody next to you, you're gonna be sometimes you're gonna need yeah, the, gonna the help, or people fall in love with each other, or people are friends and they help each other. You know, that's the reality of the everyday life. So you do have instances where the Haitian, you know, that now we're talking about the 19th and 20th century, where Haitians and Dominicans at different moments in history, they work together to defeat certain politicians or certain invaders like the, the like the US at some point in nineteen sixty five. The the US invaded the Dominican Republic to squash a revolution that was taking place there to where they wanted to bring back a president who they had elected democratically, but because of his ties with Fidel Castro, he had been overthrown by the right-wing people in the Dominican Republic with the support of the CIA. Mm. And uh, when he was overthrown, like, the people protested in the street. And guess what? At that moment, there were hundreds of Haitians who had themselves been fleeing from the Duvalier dictatorship in Haiti. And they were living with Dominican families who had taken them in. So when the revolution erupted and the U.S. invaded, the Haitians said, we are going to join our friends, the Dominicans, and we're going to fight with them. And one of them was this poet, Jacques Fioronneau, who, on whom I have written a lot, uh, who wrote poetry, who was a poet who grew up in the Dominican Republic and he wrote in Spanish. And he decided to take arms with the Dominicans uh, resistance and he died in combat and so he with his death he came he became the ultimate icon of solidarity between Haitians and Dominicans against the common enemy so 
so yeah, so that's um, so that's what I, I, I work on. And um, my research is not only on Haitian-Dominican um, relations and as they are manifested in the literature, but also on, the, on slavery and what, you know, justifies slavery and how it happened and how, you know, how the, the, the slaves resisted it and how that is represented in the literature today. How, we, how do we uh, talk about slavery? And why is it important to talk about slavery? And is slavery really uh, gone? Is it done or finished or ended? Did it really end just because it was abolished? Uh, it hasn't. How do we all fight against slavery? How do we what? How do we fight against slavery today? Do we... Oh, yeah. I mean, first we need to be informed, inform ourselves, read more about it. Um, about how it works, how it is embedded in society, you know, like the prison system or, you know, the hair salons and, you know, how does it work to inform ourselves. And because being aware will help us make better decisions. For example, I would not go again to a hair salon where I know the people may be slaves trading my hair, right, or doing anything to my nails. I don't want to do that, you know. Uh, the products that you shop, where were they made? You know, you know those those uh, handbags sold on Broadway, <laughs> on the street. Where did they come from? You know, and even some brand, fancy brands, maybe you don't know. I mean, when you think about it, almost everything could have been somehow produced by a slave. So you know, I mean. We're not going to be looking at everything, but we can have at least a more conscientious approach to how we consume products and how we consume services and think about, you know, about that, that there, it's not that they, somewhere in Libya or in Syria or wherever, that it can, they can be right here under our nose. And um, so, yeah, so that's, you know, the second step that's easy. Anybody can do that, right? And then the third step is to become maybe more of an advocate and to invest yourself into, you know, participating with organizations that fight against slavery. That's international organizations, non-profit organizations. That's another way. They owe a lot of money to these people who made them come here. And so they are in bondage. And if they complain, they're going to be reported by their all the same people who took them so that they will be deported you know so that's that's that that's the way of so so yeah so and 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 like you said the prison system is slavery by another name there is a book that was called like that just like that slavery by another name and it won the Pulitzer Mm -hmm. award in 2008 Mm -hmm. and it talks about how um right after the abolition of slavery in 1862 um it um Okay. How in um, in 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 1862 there was a way of maintaining slavery uh, from another name, so under another name. So I strongly recommend you you take a look at that at that book too. Okay. Mhm. So um, what got you um, I guess what drove you into doing um, into becoming specialized in the topic of slavery? Um, well, a few things, a few moments 
in my recent, in, in, in you know, few recent moments over the past five years. Uh, the first one was in the summer 2013 when I went to France uh, to lead a study abroad program with students from here, from the MCC. And uh, I visited the, a museum in the city of Nantes, which was one of the most important uh, port cities from where uh, ships that will go to Africa you know, of the of what they call the triangular commerce or the trade, transatlantic, transatlantic yeah. uh, trade. Uh, so that's Nantes, and there is a museum there uh, where I saw the you know devices for keeping people in chains and all of that. And then I saw this um, accounting sheet displayed on the wall where they account for the captives, uh, four hundred niggers that's the word that they used that's 400 niggers 300 negresses 200 negrillons negrilleses you know those are the words that they use in that and and then they count the value of them and you know how much they cost and then the interest and then the financing system because if you were uh if you had a plantation and you couldn't afford the 300 slaves that you needed to work in that plantation, you could put a mortgage on them. You could buy them just like you would buy a truck or a machine, and you can finance them. They were really property. Yes, yes, that's that's how I realized that humans were treated like commodity, like machines, like in like you know, totally dehumanized, and that was so upsetting. For me, because I am a descendant of, of slaves, you know, my my father, who was a black Dominican, if you were a black person in the Caribbean, you are there because you are a descendant of slaves. You're not, your parents or ancestors didn't come there from their, with their, uh, you know, on their own will. So that made me think about my ancestors and how they had been treated, you know. So that that's one uh, moment. And then the second moment was in, a few months later, in the same year, when the Dominican Republic issued a court ruling called Court Ruling 168-13 um, that um, established that people born on the Dominican Republic from parents who were in illegal or undocumented or in transit status will no longer have right to Dominican citizenship, contrary to previous constitution agreements where anybody who was born in on Dominican soil was Dominican, was had mm. like, just like here, right? It's called the Jews Solis. Well, this court ruling established that if you were born of parents who were not documented or who had who had been in transit, meaning Haitian workers, you will no longer have Dominican citizenship but what made it bad was that they made it retroactive. This law, they made it retroactive all the way to 1929. So people who had been Dominican all those years were no longer Dominican. So a hundred, like this is one of the most egregious human rights violation that have existed, you know, other legal, I mean, in, in recent history over the past 10 to 20 years. And, um, in the, I mean, human rights violation in, in the sense of legalizing it, right? Of making it 
legitimate because it was the constitutional court that made it that way like made normalize something that is totally a human rights violation yeah that's what i mean so um so when that happened it was so disturbing to me because oh now what it means what does it mean to be dominican does it why are they doing this because obviously the people who were they were targeting were the descendants of Haitian immigrants who have been coming from Haiti to the Dominican Republic for the past hundred years to work in the in the sugar plantations or in the construction industry. They were not targeting the children of of a French citizen or an Italian person coming and who didn't have the papers. If you were white in that situation, you wouldn't have a problem. They would work it out for you. You know, so that racist policy really upset me and I uh, decided to become more active as a scholar and as a teacher and to denounce that and to really start looking at where, you know, at the roots of this. Why, why were they doing this? And to try to understand it for myself. And also I became, you know, vocal in um, public events and conferences and things like that and to try to understand better and I went to visit Haiti because to my shame mm -hmm. I had never been to Haiti and so I decided you know one of the first one of the best way to um, defeat prejudice is by actually going to visit the people that you feel prejudiced about and putting yourself in the shoes of these people so I went to Haiti visited the place to dispel any notions I had of you know, of being, you know, that, that circulate in the mainstream media about Haiti being a place just poverty, of just poverty, of chaos, of uh, disasters, of zombies, AIDS, cannibalism, cannibals and voodoo and all, you name it, right? And I wanted to actually visit the place and see for myself how it was. And I said, I gotta go to Haiti. You'd love it. You would love it. And, and it's beautiful. I find it even more beautiful in many ways. I, well, it's the same island as the Dominican Republic. So it's a Caribbean island. You have Caribbean beaches. And what I like most about it is very mountainous. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of mountains. And that is a very beautiful landscape to look at. Um, and there's lots of things I could go on for hours to t telling you about Haiti. Uh, but I really invite people to go visit Haiti. Um, um, you know, just... It's a... a it's one of the countries with the lowest crime rate really? in the Caribbean. Yes, there's no crime compared to Dominican Republic where they will kill you for a cell phone. Uh, the crime rate is very high there. I've heard you know? stories. Yeah. My uncle, he would go back and forth. Um, he's an electrical engineer. Mm -hmm. He's in electrical engineering. So I think he, was, he had a, a sponsor over in the Dominican Republic, and he was trying to get property. Mm -hmm. And he was trying to invest in their... He's, he actually told me, like, his dream would be to live in a gated community in the Dominican Republic. Because <laughs> everything is so much cheaper. He, he tends to travel back and forth to China and then DR. DR for, I think, more leisure business. Mm -hmm. I mean, for leisure and uh, China is more business. Cause yeah. Just, he's also doing, like, drop shipping. He sells products. So, um, I got to go there one day, um, yeah. Dominican Republic. And while I'm there, I might as well go see Haiti. Yeah. Know? 
Yeah, so Haiti, it's, you know, the food is great and um, they're very artistic. So you will be surprised by the art production there. If you go there, try to go to the museums of contemporary artists. It's really amazing work. They are renowned worldwide for their for the high quality of their art production. Um, you know, and then there is the Creole language. There is, uh, you know, all kinds of things to to you know. The the culture is is extremely rich and interesting. Uh, but they speak English too, a lot of people, you know, so even if you don't speak the local language, it's, you, you'll be fine. Um, and so, so yeah, so that was the next thing um, that I did. And then I got to find out about Jacques Vieux-Renaud and, and uh, I got very interested about his poetry. And uh, recently I worked on a, um, on a project of translating his poetry back to French mm -hmm. so that he will be known in Haiti because people didn't know about him. That's really interesting. Yes. And so we presented the book um, in, in Haiti last year, 2018, and people loved it. And, 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 and it's a beautiful, you know, beautiful story that it kind of counteracts the other images yeah. of hostility and conflict and... So yeah, so that's what I I do, and and and, and you know, and and it, it's important to me also because I teach here, mm -hmm. and here you have a very large uh, population from uh, of Latino background and black uh, population as well, and um, and the Dominicans and Haitians and Africans, and and I like to be able to talk about these things in the classroom. Right? And, and the students really appreciate um, lo knowing or learning more about slavery and about Haitian and Dominican history and literature. So it gives me, and also I, I like to be able to teach the literature of these mm -hmm. writers because they, the students really connect yeah, with their I stories. Yeah, I could see oh, I would if, you know, I was from... Even listening to it, knowing the backstory, all the information that you're talking about, that you're you know introducing me to, I, I I'd probably fall in love, you know, once I get to Haiti, once I touch down. Yeah, yeah. I have uh, uh right now I'm teaching a class um called um slavery and revolution, mm -hmm. uh and it's focusing on the French Caribbean, so we are uh, the students are reading works by Haitian writers and also from Guadeloupe and Martinique, which are other islands that are still part of the French colonial system. Mm. And um, and some of the and the writers uh, focus on on slavery. And so I have a couple of African American students in that class, and they really relate to the material and they can compare. They keep comparing with the African American experience. Right, the stories in the Caribbean with the stories that they have read of or heard of, you know, uh, from their experience here in the U.S. So it's very interesting to have this conversation, um, you know, uh, in the classroom about this this common experience that we share between the Caribbean and the U.S. How do we all fight against slavery? How do we what? How do we fight against slavery today? Do we... Oh, yeah. I mean, first, we need to be informed, inform ourselves, read more about it, um, about how it works, how it is embedded in society, you know, like the prison system or, you know, the hair salons and, you know, how does it work? 
to inform ourselves. And because being aware will help us make better decisions. For example, I would not go again to a hair salon where I know the people may be slaves trading my hair, right? Or doing anything to my nails. I don't want to do that, you know? Uh, the products that you shop, where were they made? You know? You know those those uh, handbags sold on Broadway <laughs> on the street? Where did they come from? You know? And even some brand, fancy brands, maybe, you don't know. I mean, when you think about it, almost everything could have been somehow produced by a slave so you know i mean we're not going to be looking at everything but we can have at least a more conscientious approach to how we consume products and how we consume services and think about you know about that that there is not that they somewhere in libya or in syria or wherever that it can they can be right here under our nose and um so yeah, so that's, you know, the second step that's easy. Anybody can do that, right? And then the third step is to become maybe more of an advocate and to <clears throat> invest yourself into, you know, participating with organizations that fight against slavery. That's organiza international organizations, nonprofit organizations. That's another way. <laughs>